Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I just got back from the better part of 10 days on the road, went out to California, spoke in Stockton, Quail Lakes Baptist, great church up there, and then spoke at University of the Pacific, and then the following night spoke at Fresno State, and then uh, several days later spoke at Calvary Chapel, Tucson, great church there, and then University of Arizona this past Monday night. And I've noticed a couple of things in recent years, and particularly in these recent engagements, that, as I've said before, more and more of the questions that we get on college campuses and even in churches are moral questions. In other words, morality is at the forefront, more so than, say, it was 10 or 15 years ago. And then secondly, atheists continue to emphasize that they they just really lack a belief in God and they have no burden of proof to prove anything else. And that's really their position. And I'd like to deal with that a little bit today. We probably talked about this a couple of years ago, but it's time to revisit this lack of belief in God. Uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon, or maybe over the past uh, 10 or so years, atheists have started to say that's what they do. They just lack a belief in God. Now, is that a real helpful way of describing what they believe? And is that a real helpful way of having a conversation with somebody about ultimate issues? Uh, typically, when I debate an atheist, I, I don't debate the question, does God exist? Because that makes it seem like the theist has the burden of proof and the atheist doesn't have any burden of proof at all. I prefer to debate what better explains reality? Is it atheism or is it theism? So it's quite clear that both debaters have to come to the debate and try and explain why reality the way it is, either from an atheistic perspective or from a theistic perspective. That seems to make more sense to me, because as my mentor, Dr. Norman Geiser, used to say, it's easy to smell a rotten egg. It's hard to lay a better one. Sure, you can say that the other guy's explanation doesn't work or the other guy's worldview doesn't work for whatever reason. But then you have to come forward and give your worldview and give your reasons for why reality the way it is. It doesn't help just to say, well, your explanation's wrong. Okay. Okay. Let's say my explanation's wrong. What is the right explanation then? Because in order for you to say that my explanation's wrong, you have to have at least some idea of what the right explanation is. In order for me to say that two plus two does not equal five, I have to have some idea of what the right answer is. Even if I don't have it specifically, I've got to have some idea. I have to have some reason to, to think it's not five. Why would I have a reason to think it's not five? Maybe I know that it really is four. I'd have to have that kind of knowledge in order to say that. So I'd like to deal with this because uh, several atheists, both at Fresno State and uh, University of Arizona, 
uh, kept trying to say, well, we just lack a belief in God. Now, is that really a good way of trying to demonstrate your belief? What does it mean to lack a belief in God? Well, if you're going to say, I just lack a belief in God, that's merely a claim about your state of mind. It's not a claim about whether or not God really exists. You're just saying that psychologically, you don't have the belief that God exists. You, you lack that belief. Okay, so that's just a statement about your psychological state. I mean, most atheists today are materialists. So if I ask an atheist, um, how do you support materialism? He may give me reasons he thinks support materialism. But if I just say, well, I lack a belief in materialism, I haven't refuted materialism at all. I, I'm simply saying that I don't believe it. Okay, fine. Well, why don't you believe it? You see, just saying you lack a belief in something doesn't say anything about reality other than your own state of mind, your own psychological state. Also, if you're going to say if you lack a belief in God, that would mean that rocks, trees and animals are also atheists because they also lack a belief in God. Well, that's not really saying much. I mean, if you water down the word atheist that much, then it really loses most of its meaning because everything that doesn't believe in God would be considered an atheist then. Right. I mean, the chair I'm sitting in is an atheist. If the definition of atheism is just merely to lack a belief in God. But the other aspect to this is if atheists are going to say they lack a belief in God, then why do atheists insist that God isn't needed to explain reality because of evolution, quantum theory, multiverses, whatever? You see, those are all positive beliefs. They're positive beliefs when they say, well, you don't need God because of evolution or you don't need God because of quantum theory or you don't need God because of uh, the multiverse or whatever. Those are positive beliefs. You don't just lack a belief when you say those things. So I think it makes much more sense if you're going to have a dialogue with somebody to ask them, well, what is your explanation for why reality is the way it is? Fine. You want to throw... Stones at Christianity? Let's leave that aside for just a second. Let's, let's forget Christianity if we're just going to have a conversation about reality. Let's just put that aside for a minute. You, you can throw holes or try and poke holes in it if you want. What is your explanation for why reality the way it is? That's what I want to know. In fact, I put this this way at Fresno State. There was a, an atheist that got up to the microphone and started talking about how he just lacks a belief and all this. And, and um, I said... In fact, he, he made a comment and then he just kind of stormed up the walkway to the back of the room. He didn't even allow me to respond. And the same thing happened at University of Arizona. In fact, the first questioner stormed up after he made his comments and wouldn't really let me interact with him very much. And you can go look at the video yourself and see if you thought I was unkind. I don't, I don't think I was. In fact, all of these are streamed, by the way. So if you go to our website... Uh, well, actually, the best place to probably see these is go to our YouTube channel. And if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, why not? We have over 500 short Q&A videos up there. You can share them with other folks. Thankfully, there's over 130-something thousand people that are subscribing. And uh, hopefully, they, they're using these videos to interact with other people. In any event, you can see both of these up there. Uh, just go to the Q&A section, the one at University of Arizona and the one at 
the uh, Fresno State University. At Fresno State, as I say, this atheist made a comment and then he stormed up. And I said, uh, after he was trying to say atheism is just a lack of belief, I said, look, uh, let's take Michael Shermer, whom I've debated a couple of times. If uh, Michael Shermer and I are consider ourselves detectives, we're trying to discover what the truth is. And we come across a murdered body. And uh, I say, I think the murderer is is this guy, candidate X. And Michael Shermer, the atheist, says, well, no, I don't think candidate X is the right guy. I lack a belief that candidate X is, is the murderer. And I say, OK, you, you lack a belief that candidate X is the murderer. That's that's who I think it is. Who do you think it is? And he goes, oh, well, I, I don't have to come forth with any any uh, suspect here. I just lack a belief that your suspect is the tr- is the true murderer. Would he be a good detective if that's all he did? No, of course not. He doesn't just have the obligation to rule out suspects. He also has the obligation to find who the true suspect is. And that's what people who are having a conversation about reality and are trying to discover what what best explains reality. Both people in a discussion have the burden of proof to put forth what they think best explains reality. So if, if I say to Michael Shermer, he, if he comes forth with suspect Y, and I go, well, I just lack a belief to suspect Y, and Michael says to me, well, who is the right suspect then? And I go, I just lack a belief it's suspect Y. I'm not doing my job then. Lack of belief doesn't get us anywhere. It just tells us of our psychological states. What is the truth? For that... We're going to get into it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just a couple of minutes, so don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. Does lacking a belief in God really describe what atheism is? That's what we're talking about today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. By the way, if you haven't transitioned on over to the right podcast now, we're no longer updating the Cross-Examine podcast. We're updating the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. So if you would go over there and subscribe to that, and thank you for continuing to put positive reviews up there. It helps us get this podcast to more people because the more people give a positive review of it, it moves up the charts, which means more people see it. So thank you for doing that. All right, let's deal with this issue. Lacking a belief in God, as I mentioned in the first segment, that's just saying something about the psychology of somebody. It's not really saying anything about the real world. Now, if we're going to have a discussion about whether or not God exists, there are aspects of reality that need to be explained. Both people in a conversation need to explain several things. For example, the beginning of the universe. Why does the universe exist at all? Both philosophy and science 
The evidence from science seemed to be strongly suggesting, if not nearly proving, that the universe had a beginning. If it had a beginning, if space, matter, and time had a beginning, what caused that? Seems to me, if space, matter, and time had a beginning, the cause has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. Okay, well, what's the atheist explanation for that? You just can't say, well, I lack a belief in God. You've got to give a reason why this universe could exist in the absence of someone like God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator. The fine-tuning of the universe is best explained by design. Extreme fine-tuning. You change any one of a number of factors about our universe, any one of them, virtually imperceptible. Either the universe doesn't exist, or if it does exist, life can't be supported. If you can't explain that by uh, a theistic being, then how is it explained from an atheistic perspective? How about, you know, atheists will always appeal to um, the laws of nature. Well, where did the laws of nature come from? That's part of the fine tuning, by the way. And why are they so persistent and consistent? Why does every physical thing change, but not the laws that govern them? Why do these laws exist? Paul Davies, a uh, a uh, cosmologist, agnostic cosmologist from Arizona State University a number of years ago, put an article in the New York Times that said, taking science by faith. And he basically said, according to him anyway, well, Christians just take God by faith. Of course, we don't, but that's what he said. And uh, atheists just take the laws of nature by faith. They're just un- unexplained starting points. And then he asked, where did the laws of nature come from? And he said, my email box was filled with vitriol from scientists saying, don't ask those questions. They're just there. We can't explain why they're there. They're just there, the laws of nature. Well, look, laws come from lawgivers. And why are they so precise and consistent? Where did life come from? What, why does life exist? Life is, is undeniably designed. Even atheists are admitting that it appears to be designed. Well, look, if it appears to be designed, maybe it really is designed. And what about consciousness? Why can we even why can we even ascertain truths about reality outside of our skulls? Why are we conscious? Daniel Dennett, the famous atheist, said, consciousness is an illusion. One wonders if he was conscious when he said that. I mean, <laughs> I mean come on. You, there's no way you could know it was an illusion unless you were outside of the illusion. And in order to get outside of the illusion, you'd have to be someone like God. If you're going to say that human consciousness is just an illusion, you'd have to get outside of human consciousness to say it's just an illusion. Another way of, of looking at this is in order to know that you're having a dream, you'd have to wake up, right? You'd have to get outside the dream to say, whew, that was just a dream. Well, in order to know that your consciousness is an illusion, you'd have to get outside of it. And how is this explained by materialism? And not only that, where do, where do materials come from? It seems that matter had a beginning. Second law of thermodynamics shows matter can't be eternal. If matter had a beginning, then something outside of matter, something immaterial, brought it into existence, it would seem. You see, you just can't say you lack a belief in God. You've got to give evidence or reasons why matter exists, why the four natural forces exist, the laws of nature, why the universe exists, why it appears to be designed and fine-tuned. Objective morality. Why does that exist? I had one atheist the other night at Arizona State University got up to the microphone and 
Oh, this is interesting. I got to tell you guys this. This was, I was told that an atheist philosophy professor who in conversation with a student called me a bigot. This guy at Arizona's University of Arizona called me a bigot and he said he was going to show up, right? Well, I get a a text uh, the other day from the organizer of this whole thing. And he said, um, several people observed who they said was a philosophy philosophy professor in the hallway at the University of Arizona the other night, coaching students on how to ask the questions properly. (laughs) And my friend who organized this says, I guess it shouldn't be surprising. He didn't come in. He's outside listening, trying to coach the atheistic students who were there on what to say. Now, I guess I understand why philosophy professors or professors in general who are atheists won't come to the microphone themselves. Not because um, I'm brilliant or anything, but for this very reason. Look, if we have an exchange and I look bad, okay, I'm, I leave t- the next day, all right? I don't, I don't work at the University of Arizona. But if a philosophy professor comes up there and he looks bad before his students – there's too much risk there. He doesn't want to take that risk. I get it. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he must, he, he coached this kid to come up there and give the, I just lack a belief in God definition of atheism. And so I said back to this kid, I said, in addition to saying, okay, you're just talking about your psychological state here. So you're not really saying anything about the real world. Let me give you a, let me ask you a question. Here's the question, or the proposition, I should say. Yahweh exists. In other words, God exists. Here's my question to you, young skeptic, young atheist. Do you agree with that statement? Do you disagree with that statement, or are you unsure about it? In other words, you don't know whether Yahweh exists. And uh, he said, oh, I disagree. Okay, well, then you're an atheist then. Oh, I'm an agnostic atheist. I just lack a belief. No, look, there's only three possible ways you can answer the question. God exists. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. I don't know. If you're saying I don't know, you're an agnostic. If you're saying he doesn't, you're an atheist. Okay. If you're going to say you're an atheist, then explain why the universe exists, why the fine-tuning of the universe exists, where the natural laws come from and why are they so persistent and concise? Where does life come from? How about consciousness? How about objective morality? I can go on. The laws of logic, the laws of mathematics, intelligence, personality. Why? How about Old Testament prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus? All of these things need to be explained from an atheistic perspective if you're going to be a person who is seeking truth. If you just want to say you lack a belief, okay, well, you're not really saying anything then. You're just talking about your psychology. You're not really in entering the, the, the public sphere and trying to make a case for your position. So I went on to ask him, uh, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, well, because of conservative politics or something. He said, Something had to do with social policy. And uh, and then I said, well, what do you mean 
social policy or what do you mean by morality? What's your standard? And he, he went on to say, well, a sec, the secular humanist standard. Well, why is the secular humanist standard right? Who said Oh, you can read papers. Yeah, you can read all sorts of papers. People will say things. That doesn't necessarily mean what they're saying is right and true. What standard exists, objective moral standard exists if there is no God? Where do, where do these moral pronouncements and moral uh, claims and moral principles that you think are true, where do they come from if there is no God? Where do moral obligations come from? Obligations come from persons. Laws come from lawgivers. And yet you're trying to say that everybody should vote a certain way because people have certain rights. We didn't get into what the specifics were. I assume it's same-sex marriage and sleeping who with you, you, you want to sleep with or whatever it is. Okay, transgenderism. You can imagine what whatever he thought was legal and or should be legal or or what particular moral rights people should have whatever they are if there is no god they're not rights at all they're just your opinion because if there's no standard beyond humanity everything is just a matter of opinion and this is what i keep coming back to because atheists are assuming a standard they're stealing a standard from god a distorted standard but they're stealing a standard from god when they say they have certain rights and that's what the whole book's dealing from God is about. And so he just continued to go on. Well, you could read papers. You could, well, you could read all sorts of papers, but there's no way to justify a objective moral standard unless there's an objective moral lawgiver. It's not just someone's opinion. It's not just your opinion against Hitler's opinion. There's a standard beyond you and Hitler that you're appealing to. And that is what we mean by God. Platonism doesn't work. The idea, the idea that there are just these objective moral values up there. How, how would that work? Let's just say justice exists without reference to God. Well, why should I be just? Why am I obligated to align my life according to justice and selflessness rather than injustice and selfishness if there's no God? Who said? You said? And it would be odd, by the way, for justice not to be just. I mean, if justice exists independent of a mind, independent of God, then how could it really be just? The only way justice can ever be done is if there is a standard and a all-knowing mind who can be just and ensure that justice is done. If justice isn't personal, in other words, if... If the source of justice doesn't have the ability to know what has been unjust and have the power to make something just, either now or in the afterlife, then justice doesn't exist. Yet everybody on a college campus believes in justice. They have all sorts of causes they think that people ought to support. Well, without God, they're just your opinion. All right, a lot more right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's cross with a D on the end of it. We're back in two. 
If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Have you guys ever heard the name Chuck Lorre? Chuck Lorre. Yeah, he is a Hollywood producer. He produces uh, TV shows. One of the shows he produced was a show called Big Bang Theory, which I guess has just run its run out its however many seasons it was on. It's no longer uh, being it's still on TV, but it's they're not making new episodes. Anyway, uh, this guy and I, I don't know what his religious beliefs are. I think he was brought up Jewish, but I don't know if he has any religious beliefs now. In any event, after these programs, sometimes he would put up a saying of some kind. And uh, I happened to notice one of these sayings on the Internet. And here's what he said. And I, I said, again, I don't know this man's religious beliefs, but here's what he said. It's quite insightful. He said, in no particular order, I could not or would not exist without air, food, water, gravity, tides, the moon, the night, the sun, civilization, the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, the law of the land, ancestors having sex, DNA, viruses, bacteria, plants, animals, oceans, ice caps, the kindness of strangers, the Big Bang, familial bonds, smart people, brave people, memory, medicine, the periodic table of elements, tribal instincts, magnetic fields, weather, Earth's molten core, a rotating Earth, a tilted Earth, tectonic plates, sleep, death, heat, consciousness, evolution, teachers, and the miraculous self-regulating chemical factory that is my body. Other than that, I like to think of myself as a self-made man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well put, Mr. Laurie. Yes, many of the things that Chuck talks about here in this kind of fun saying are what some scientists would call the fine-tuning and design of the universe. In fact, many of the things he mentioned here are fine-tuned and are best explained by design. Think about how many things that we are dependent on for us to even draw breath in the morning, for us to even be, to, to even exist. Many of the things he mentions here in this quote, that needs to be explained. To just say I lack a belief in an intelligent designer is not enough. You have to say, well, why do all these things exist and why do all these things exist in such a precise way such that any of them change slightly would mean that none of us would exist and not even a universe would exist or a universe would exist that couldn't support life. How, how, how can one explain this? Well, some atheists will appeal to a multiverse. We've talked about this on the program before. A, there's no evidence for a multiverse. We can't observe these other universes. B, these other universes, if they existed, would still require creation at some point and fine-tuning themselves. So you don't really get, get, a, the, get rid of the need for a creator and a designer. It seems to me you multiply 
the need for a creator and a designer. In fact, Paul Davies, the guy I mentioned earlier, the agnostic astronomer, calls the multiverse a dodge. Of course, nobody would be suggesting other universes out there unless the universe, this universe, appeared to be so designed, so fine-tuned. Who's going to come up with this speculative theory that there are other realities, other universes out there, unless you're trying to explain why this universe exists in the absence of design. You're just trying to multiply your chances that you'll get a universe like this by chance. But again, chance is not a cause. Chance doesn't cause anything. Chance is a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. And oh, by the way, why is math, why does it apply to reality so well? And why can our minds ascertain truths about the real world using mathematics? Eugene Wigner, 57 or 8 years ago, back when I was born, back in about 1961, I think it was, wrote a paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. <laughs> in other words, from an atheist perspective, why should math even work? And why should it why can we describe external reality mathematically so precisely? He gave no answer, but the best answer is in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. In other words, this universe is designed and can be explained mathematically because it's the ultimate or the ultimate cause of this universe is a mind whose nature sets up this organized universe or set up this organized universe and keeps it organized, keeps it set up. Now, to just say I lack a belief in that being... Okay, that, again, just your psychological state, but you're not saying anything about why the universe is the way that way. This is why I say in the book Stealing from God, in order to do science, in order to do math, in order to do logic, in order to reason, you have to steal from God to do so. Because the laws of logic, the laws of math, the order of the universe, the consistent and precise natural laws that allow us to do science, consistent cause and effect. All these things are much better explained by a mind than they are in the absence of a mind. And if you're going to say, well, I lack a belief in that mind. Again, I'm going to ask you, well, what explains it then? How do you explain that mind arose from matter? And where did matter come from? At the end of the day, there's only really, really only two worldviews. Either matter arose from mind or mind arose from matter. Now, we know that matter had a beginning. We know that matter alone is dumb, that matter is composed, it's put together. So there must be something that put it together. And that would be a mind, an intelligence who could put matter together and could create matter, a powerful intelligence. And who can create an orderly universe and sustain an orderly universe. Now, of course, when you're having a conversation after a presentation like I always do at a college campus, you can't go into all this detail. In fact, somebody this week asked me at one of the campuses, I think it was at University of Arizona before we did the presentation, what's the hardest question you get? And I usually say that one. <laughs> Yes, there's so many hard questions, but actually, in reality, in my view, the questions really aren't hard to answer if you have enough time. They're just hard to answer in two minutes. That's the problem. 
how can you kind of give a kind of a robust answer in two minutes? It's really hard to do. Many, many answers to questions are nuanced and you need time to unpack that. So when I'm having a conversation with an atheist, I only have the opportunity to ask one or two questions back and to see if I can see where the atheist is coming from and see if I can ask an atheist a question to try and reveal what they're really assuming. Uh, like, for example, when the atheist said, well, I, I think, you know, secular humanist morality is good. What do you mean? First of all, what do you mean by good? Secondly, where does this where does this morality come from and why am I obligated to obey it if there's no God? So these are the questions you you need to ask. But again, you don't have that much time. So that's the biggest issue. That's why when on a podcast, I can unpack things more clearly. And it really is humorous. You read some of the YouTube comments on some of our Q&As. These are these are anywhere from one minute to five minute Q&As. And you hear people saying in the comments, oh, he should have said this or he should have said that. OK, if I had a half an hour, maybe. <laughs> I mean, But come on, you can't cover all the bases if you're trying to keep uh, the answer short because you got a line of people trying to ask questions. In any event, back to this issue, you can't just say that you lack a belief. That's not enough. If I say I lack a belief in quantum vacuums or I lack a belief in evolution or I lack materialism or I lack a belief in the multiverse, you wouldn't say, oh, great, you've really refuted my argument. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I would just be saying what my psychological state is. Uh, in any event, this atheist, going back to the guy there at University of Arizona, tried to appeal again to morality. And I see this over and over again. And they try and bring up issues in the Old Testament, whether it's slavery in the Old Testament or supposed genocide in the Old Testament or rape in the Old Testament. Again, there are answers to those questions. I have slides. I go through brief answers to them. You don't have time to unpack all of the implications or nuance everything. But you do that and... They're still morally outraged. Again, what's your standard to say what goes on in the Old Testament or the New Testament or even what goes on in society is morally good or bad if there's no God? And I'll say this again, atheists, if you want to say that the God of the Bible, for whatever reason, is immoral, you have no objective means, no objective standard by which to say that. Now, it's a fair question to ask Christians you're going to say you're as a God, your God is a God of love. Well, he appears to wipe out people in the Old Testament. How can you say that's loving? OK, that's a fair question for our, our worldview. But from your worldview, there should be nothing wrong with that because there is no right or wrong. Things just happen. As Richard Dawkins famously said, we just dance to our DNA. There's no justice. There's no good. There's no evil. Things just happen. Yet, on the other hand, the same Richard Dawkins will claim the God of the Old Testament is evil. Look, you can't have it both ways. Either God exists and there is a standard of goodness by which you would know evil, or he doesn't exist and there is no such thing as evil or good. So which is it? What you can say in order to defeat Christianity is to say, okay, God does exist, but he's not the God of the Bible. He's not the God of Christianity. Okay, fair enough. Make your case. What evidence do you have for this being? 
And if that being exists, fine, I'll give up Christianity and I'll, I'll believe in that being, whoever that is. But it seems to me when you put all the evidence together, the best explanation for why reality is the way it is, is because Jesus rose from the dead. Well, first of all, let me back up because God exists and Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. If those two facts are true, if God exists, then of course he can raise Jesus from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead after predicting it and accomplishing it, then he's God and whatever he teaches is true. So that's why I'm a Christian because it's actually true. Not because it's just wish fulfillment because I actually think it really is true that God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. For those who want to say that Christianity is not the true religion and Christianity, the Christian God, isn't the true God. You've got to deal with the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to deal with all that evidence that a church could explode out of Jerusalem, out of Judaism, when everybody knew where the tomb was. A, a, a new religion that said that Jesus had risen from the dead. The Jews, the Romans wanted Christianity stopped and they could have done so easily by going to where the tomb was, taking out the body. It never would have gotten any further. But they couldn't do that because Jesus was still using his body. He had resurrected. But this is going to talk about the resurrection. I just thought I'd point that out. We're back in just a couple of minutes. And oh, by the way, I got a lot coming up here. Up in Alaska and then Seattle. I'll tell you about it right after the break. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation. 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm coming up to the great state of Alaska next week, October 20th. Lord willing, I'll be at Anchorage Baptist Temple. Great church there right in Anchorage for two services. I think there's one at 10, one at 11. Then there's also a 6 p.m. service. I'll be doing What Is God Like in the Morning? And then If God, Why Evil at night. And then the next night, I'll be at the University of Alaska at Anchorage for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's Monday, October 21st. And then the following weekend, I'll be at the Illuminate Apologetics Conference in Shelton, Washington. Illuminate Apologetics Conference in Shelton, Washington. Not just me. J.P. Moreland will be there as well. Looking forward to hanging out with J.P. I haven't had much much a chance to, to see him in person just a couple of times. So J.P. is a wonderful apologist, Christian philosopher. Uh, and that's up again in Shelton, Washington. That's Friday, October 21st and Saturday, October 26th. And uh, I will uh, be there with J.P. Moreland and several others. Check our website, crossexamine.org, for more on that. And then we got Rethink coming up in Minnesota. Minnesota. Yes, up there in, uh, where is it? Minneapolis, in actually Eden Prairie, Minnesota, November 8th and 9th. The great folks at Stand to Reason are putting that on. So check that out. And then uh, Wednesday, November 13th, University of Maine at Or Ono. Or Ono? I don't know if that's pronounced that way. It's O R O N O. 
up in Maine. So you maniacs up there, looking forward to seeing you at University of Maine in November. Anyway, check our website out. We also have some TV tapings here in Charlotte we're doing, crossexamined.org. Also want to thank Jay Warner Wallace last week for doing the show on social justice. I know someone wrote in with a social justice question. So Jay, I mean, um, Jay said, hey, I'll handle that one. So he did a whole show on it. So go back and listen to that uh, if you're interested. Uh, that's why you know, I was out for 10 days. I couldn't do the program. So it's always great to have Jim on. He's such a, a brilliant guy. And uh, you ought to listen to his podcast as well. If you're listening to this one, Cold Case Christianity, you can find it on iTunes. He has an app as well, a great app. You should get his Cold Case Christianity app. So check him out at coldcasechristianity.com. All right, let me go to some questions. We we, we talked about uh, the, uh, you know, oh, gee, I'm losing my mind here. I'm tired. <laughs> it's been traveling too much. We talked about a lack of belief in God. That's what atheists have been saying, and that ma- many of their questions are moral now, but they, d- they don't have a standard for morality, despite the fact that they insist. In fact, you know, the, really the only – I shouldn't say the only, but the atheist that really tried to live out atheism and went mad doing it was Nietzsche. He knew that if there's no God, there's no objective right and wrong. And uh, – he wound up going mad. Ultimately, I think he 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 got a uh, he got a venereal disease, and it ultimately killed him. Uh, so, but but Nietzsche was was true with the implications of atheism. If there's no God, there's nothing right or wrong. There is no ultimate meaning. Life is absurd. If there is no God. Anyway, let me get to a couple of your questions that you wrote in. Melina, or sorry, Melinda wrote in, my daughter says her new religion is love. How do I address this? Okay. Well, actually, that is the new religion of many people in America now, love. But what does love mean? So I would ask some questions. And using Greg Kokel's questions from Tactics are always very helpful. When somebody says, my new religion is love, my first question is, what do you mean by that? First of all, what do you mean by religion? And what do you mean by love? What is love? How do you describe love? What is the definition of love? Find out what they mean by love, because too often what people mean by love is approval, that you just need to approve of everything. And as soon as you say you don't approve of everything, they don't approve of you. (laughs) So they're not loving. We had a debate two years ago, myself and uh, the great Dr. Michael Brown We had a debate with a couple of LGBT activists at our seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, and the debate title was something like, does love require approval? And of course, they were trying to say yes, and we were trying to say no. And at one point in the debate, I turned to them and I said, "Um, do you love us? And they said, yes. And I said, do you approve of our position? And they said, no. I said, well, you just lost the debate then, because you're proving that you can love without approving of everything the other person thinks or does. And so love does not require approval. In fact, quite often, love often requires you not to approve and to stand in the way of evil. Every parent knows that if you tolerate everything your child wants to do, if you approve of everything your child wants to do, you're not loving, you're unloving. So I would... Uh, Melinda, I would ask your daughter, what is love? What does it mean? And the second question after you ask, what do you mean by that? How how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what evidence do you have that this is the true religion? 
Now, in any false belief, normally there is a big kernel of truth. And Christianity is a religion centered on love, the love of God for us who are unlovable because of our sin. Paul said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, but who dies for an unrighteous man? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ literally died, came to earth and took humanity on himself lived the perfect life and took our punishment on himself. So we wouldn't have to bear the brunt of God's justice and God is just. So he has to punish sin instead of punishing us. He punishes himself. What love is better than that? Jesus famously said, there's no greater love than to die for your friends. How about there's no greater love than to die for your enemies. We're his enemies. And he died for us. So Christianity is centered on love. But not the squishy, no standard kind of love. That's not love at all. That's sentimentality. C.S. Lewis, and I'm paraphrasing him again, said something like this. You know, we would like God to be a benevolent old man who just wants everybody to, be, to have a good time. He said, that's not God. A God that does not judge sin is not loving. A father that does not judge sin is not loving. In fact, God is a father. He's not a grandfather. He doesn't want to spoil us. He wants to mold us into himself. And that requires discipline. That requires saying no. That requires not approving everything because it's a dangerous world out there. And if you approve of everything someone wants to do, you're not loving. You're an enabler. There's a difference between loving somebody and enabling them. So, Melinda, I would ask the question. What do you mean by that? How would you come to that conclusion? And then, of course, the third question is, have you ever considered that love does not mean approval? Oh, it might mean approval when somebody is doing something right and good, but it means disapproval when someone is doing something wrong and evil. And you have to do that. And if your child does not agree with this, <laughs> yet she says she loves you, she's proving your point, not hers. So you may want to call her on that. I got uh, another question from, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I got to find it. Here it is. Oh, uh, he said, uh, I have been discussing, this is from Daniel. I've been discussing the Old Testament law versus the New Testament law with a volunteer at our church. And more specifically, how one regulation applies and the other doesn't. For example, how is pork no longer unclean? And women wives no longer have to be have to ritually cleanse themselves. But same sex marriage is still wrong. I realize the two examples are more of a cleanliness versus behavior topic. But I'm personally drawing a blank on examples. I guess my question would ultimately boil down to how do we decide what regulations and laws apply to the Old Testament and which don't? Also, what would be a Bible based response to someone asking about asking about same sex marriage? OK. In fact, uh, that's something I've done several presentations on, and I've got two minutes to sum it all up. <laughs> okay, well, let me say this. First of all, everything from Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy is called the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews says the Old Covenant is obsolete. That's Hebrews 8.13. We're in a new covenant now. Unless laws are repeated in the New Testament... They do not apply to us. Now, nine out of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And so they do apply to us. Also, 
principles from the Old Testament that are eternal would be repeated in the New Testament. And even some that aren't are still applicable. You don't even need the Bible to know, say, that bestiality is wrong. Okay, it's natural law. But there are laws that were just laws for Israel. The cleanliness laws you mentioned, the diet laws that you mentioned here, Daniel. Those laws no longer apply to Christians. How do we know? Well, go to Acts 15, the first church council where they basically say after the Pharisees, believers who were Pharisees and had become Christians said, we have to obey the Old Testament law. And Peter and James and Paul got together and they basically said, no, just stay away from sexual immorality and meat sacrifice to idols. If you do these things, you'll do well. So sexual immorality is still a problem. And it's repeated in the New Testament in many places. But dietary laws no longer apply. Jesus actually did away with dietary laws while affirming sexual immorality laws. In Mark chapter seven, he says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. And he mentions theft and sexual immorality and several other things. Well, what did sexual immorality mean in his day? And still today, it means any sexual activity outside of that between a man and a woman inside of marriage. So rape, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, premarital sex, that's what that is. Um, those things are what Jesus would consider sexually immoral and did consider and still are sexually immoral, according to him, according to both the Old and the New Testament. So. The New Testament, the new covenant is our standard. Much of what's in the old covenant is repeated in the New Testament, but much isn't, particularly the dietary laws and elsewhere. Now, with regard to same-sex marriage, where was Jesus on same-sex marriage? Matthew 19. For this reason, a man leaves his, his, his uh, mother and father and clings to his wife. That's what marriage is. That's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 19. So if people want to say, well, where are you on same-sex marriage? You just say, look, I'm with Jesus. Marriage is between a man and a woman. All right, friends, great being with you. I'm Frank Turek. Go to our website, crossexamine.org for more. Don't forget, I'm in Alaska next week and the week after Shelton, Washington. All the details are on our website. Check it out there, crossexamine.org. God bless. See you next time. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.